This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Favalli, coming at you this time without my co-host, Andrew D. Bailey, because he is taking his law school finals for the next few days. We wish him well in that, and if anyone needs a good lawyer, should they be arrested, uh, you know, just at Andy, because he's going to be... Well, I guess you're not a lawyer after finals, but he'll be able to take the bar. Either way, good luck to him. In his absence, though, we have brought on Adam Spinella, the Washington and Jefferson assistant men's basketball coach. He is also a writer for B-Ball Breakdown, NBA Math, and a Fast Model contributor. He is also on vacation and podcasting with us anyway because he is in OG when it comes to speaking hoops, so we appreciate him. I, I just want the, our listeners to know that I basically begged him not to come on because I hate interrupting people's vacations. Work-life balance is important, but again, he's a workaholic and we love having him on, so he won me over. And be sure to follow him on Twitter at Spinella14. That's S-P-I-N-E-L-L-A 14. Very quickly before we get to everything we have to tackle, We just want to remind everyone to please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. We love seeing your comments. We love seeing the ratings go up. They're a great ego boost for Andy after he's had a tough day studying law. You can also still get 15% off at the mbamath.com shop. That's mbamath.com slash shop. Promo code Benno. That should be easy to remember, B-E-N-O, because he gets a shout out at the end of every podcast, except for this one because Andy's not here. With that, though, we get to the question that always kicks off our podcast, the one everyone is dying to know about. Adam, how are you doing? I am doing great. You know, like you said, I am on vacation, but I've heard somewhere basketball never stops. So, you know, why the hell should I? It's uh, it's great to be on here talking some hoops with you. It's been a fascinating week. And again, as the playoffs continue to unfold here and kind of these less competitive conference semifinals are soon to be wrapping up, we've got some serious questions to answer in the basketball world, and I'm looking forward to tackling them with you tonight. Yeah, you know, it's a ton, and it's interesting that you say basketball never stops because the NBA specifically has just become basically basically, excuse me, a year-round sport. I remember when I first started covering it, there was kind of like maybe like two months and change of downtime, but now by the time the finals are over and you leak into the draft and then free agency and then the summer league and then the usual trade demands, it's like we might get a three- to five-week block where it's relatively quiet, maybe, if we're lucky. And they cut into our preseason time by you know elongating the season and moving yep. the, the, the tip date back into October, so camps are all in September. I mean, yeah, there's there really is no off-season anymore. No, and last time, because of that, last time I was on vacation with my fiance, we were in Florida, and she 
literally took my work phone away from me. Little did she know I still have Twitter hooked up to my personal one, so it was fine. That's right. <laughs> but in the spirit of basketball never stopping, uh, we're going to just get to a couple of news items before we talk about playoff musings, and we're going to finally get to our Thunder postmortem. We're also going to talk about the future of the Raptors, which is they probably have one of the more interesting off-seasons coming up. Um, the first news item we'll get to, one of two, the Charlotte Hornets announced that they have hired San Antonio Spurs assistant coach James Borrego to be their next head coach. And I'm just, we tend to, it's tough to know a lot about assistant coaches, especially when they're not the associate head coach. That's Messina in San Antonio. But anytime you pluck someone off the Spurs' coaching tree, it's generally deemed a good decision. Uh, I'm wondering what your kind of just general thoughts were on them going, the Hornets specifically going in in this direction where they didn't go with a proven name. They went with someone who's going to be a little, who's going to be new basically, except for a short stint previously to this head coaching fold. And does that say anything about how they'll view their future? Yeah, I think that's probably the more important takeaway if you're a Hornets fan right now. I mean, it's basically a crapshoot trying to predict what a coach is going to be like, what scheme they're going to run, what you know, what level of sharpness they have with their ATOs or or kind of lineup management uh, tactics. He Borrego's a, sp- a Spurs guy through and through. He was an assistant for Monty Williams, an assistant for Jacques Vaughn in Orlando, and then got a stint as the interim coach there when he was relieved of his duties. And then went back to the bench in San Antonio. So, I mean, he's had connections to well-known Spurs organization guys since he started as an assistant coach. To me, the, the biggest signing here is that by going with a, a first-time head coach in Borrego, the the Hornets are a little bit more susceptible to tearing things down and really hitting the start button uh, over again because they have – uh, typically first-time head coaches get a little bit more patience and you hire somebody thinking that they're going to grow into their role. So I think that's uh, that's one possible takeaway we could have from this hire. That was like my initial thought because it seems like that's starting over is what they should do. It won't be easy, but you have Kemba Walker's expiring contract. I don't think you should be a part of his next contract as good as he's going to be. And he is your ticket. You're not going to get a haul for him because he's expiring, but I think he's your ticket to getting off someone like Marvin Williams, MKG, or though I don't view him as much as an albatross as, as some at two years and $26 million. Maybe even get off Nick Batum in the same deal, and perhaps you get a pick or a prospect in return. And, and the fact that they went with someone who, again, relatively fresh to the head coaching scene, I, I would think... It implies that they're going to explore that route, if not just dive straight into it. I It still kind of maybe seems like a wild card, though, with Mitch Kupchak there. It sort of seemed like maybe Michael Jordan put him in place to avoid the rebuild, maybe. But again, this coaching hire signifies that that maybe it's it's something a little different. Right. Well, and, and something strange to go with that, too. I, I mean, usually when a new GM comes in, you can see a lot of times they hire guys that they have ties to before or have worked with or, or kind of been in the same organization. Kupchak comes from a, a long lineage in the Lakers organization. He worked with Clifford, the old coach of the Hornets, but not with the new guy. So he actually got rid of somebody that he had a prior relationship with because Clifford was the uh, the assistant in L.A. when Dwight Howard was there. And and now he brought in a guy that's completely foreign to, to kind of his organization. So really strange dynamics at work. And uh, just the last thing really quickly on them is 
they, I think the argument against them rebuilding has never been stronger because they're not going to have money to spend until 2020 at the earliest. Wow. That might even be a stretch because Dwight Howard comes off the books next season, but you take his $23.8 million and you apply it to Kemba Walker and then probably right. then some. So if I'm them, I'm starting over. It's a tough pill to swallow, but at this point, I just, you're going to have to start, if you even look at it this way, you're going to have to start reinvesting in, if you want to keep this group together, a guy like Jeremy Lamb or Frank Kaminsky. Yep. Like, those guys are going to need new contracts soon, too. Yeah, it, 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 it doesn't get any easier next summer for for Charlotte looking at it. And that's the thing is you could you could really get this summer. If you package Kemba with one of the, the guys that's not an expiring and get him off the books, whether that's MKG, Marvin Williams, or even Batum, you get rid of Lamb and you cash in on that. I mean, you have a chance at the – I think they're projected right now to have the 11th best odds. Sorry, now, so if, I mean, if they end up with the 11th pick, you got a decent shot at landing a, a solid point guard in this year's class at 11. So it, it might be the time to pull the trigger on the Kemba deal. Yeah, I agree with you there. The second news item, I guess it's not really a news item, but new Knicks head coach David Fisdale had his press conference earlier today. We're recording this on a Tuesday uh, knowing that you've seen the quotes, what, just the biggest takeaways for me and the one we should probably riff on is you had Steve Mills and even there was James Dolan, I believe, said something. You pointed out to me before the podcast about how David Fisdale's a, a fan of lineup analytics, which they liked. He also talked, Fisdale himself talked about using positionless basketball. He wouldn't tether Kristaps Porzingis to the four or the five or just this general ceiling and he even went as far someone asked him about having three point guards on the roster with Burke Moutier and Neil Aquina and he interjected saying that guards he wouldn't call them point guards he he just called them straight up guards and I thought that was interesting too it's you haven't really heard this type of talk from a Knicks coach or really anyone associated with them before even when the Knicks themselves have selves have broached the topic yeah I, I just to me I don't know what's newsworthy about most of this because these are things that pretty much every team in the nba is doing or should be doing already lineup analytics you mean take a look at plus minus numbers and how you know guys fare on the court with one guy as opposed to off the court kind of what the the long-term impact is for a guy how, how are you not studying that stuff you know i mean to laud a guy for doing something like that is to me it, it's like i i it's like having an English teacher that you hire and being like, wow, they're really good at, at correcting like punctuation and grammar. Like, yeah, they're an English teacher. It's what they should be doing. It's newsworthy because it's the Knicks. And that this says more about them as an organization than it does a, about the NBA in general. That that's just how low they fall and that this is a big deal that there's a coach in here who's concerned about lineup analytics or that this is the direction that they had to focus on that it's like you said it seems like it should be a given um and yet it's noteworthy at new york's presser or Fisdale's introductory presser it probably says more about phil jackson than anybody the fact that this type of thing is foreign to their organization because of what they've kind of had over the last few years yeah um and for lineup analytics the thing that'll be interesting and i don't know if we're going to see it next year i tend to think Krista, and maybe I'll get your opinion on this too. The first part is I think Kristaps Porzingis is in for a Paul George type season when he broke his leg and you saw him play in, I think it was six games. It was just to get his feet, his legs under him before he would go into the next season. I think it'll be something similar with Porzingis. The Knicks aren't going to really have anything to play for next season anyway if they're smart. But two, uh, this take this for data. 
The Knicks played 206 possessions with Kristaps Porzingis on the floor last year at center with Neil Aquina also on the floor, and they were a plus three points per 100 possessions with a defensive rating that ranked in the 86th percentile, according to Cleaning the Glass. That's something that maybe David Fisdale might place some stock in. Yeah, I mean, we saw it with his offense in Memphis. He did a great job utilizing Marcus Soul and his three-point shooting ability. I know the two didn't get along, but Fisdale, I thought, did a really nice job of, of getting him a ton of open looks and leveraging him to get open looks for some of his teammates. Uh, the second thing there is, is we, from from us who have been watching the Eastern Conference semifinals right now and what Cleveland has done moving Kevin Love to the five, offensively those lineups are just so hard to guard. Uh, so, I, you know, long term, I I think positionless basketball is kind of the, the buzzword, but Porzingis might have his biggest and best impact by being kind of the lone big guy on the court surrounding him with a few more penetrators and shooters and multi-positional defenders. And it's probably just important, I'm not a doctor, but after he's had all these problems with the left side of his body, now he's 7'3", going to come back from a torn ACL, it's probably better to give him more freedom to not be stationary, but just to reside and dwell closer to the basket. And you're more likely to be able to do that at the five still than anywhere else. Yeah, and to me, that there are a couple strange things at factor at play here with the Knicks. Like one, Porzingis is going to be a, a free agent next summer, and how much does this knee injury kind of eat into the valuation of him? Uh, and would the Knicks really be in a rush to try to get him back and have that, like you were saying earlier, Paul George type of five or six game run, or would they rather keep him off? and not let any other teams kind of see how he's doing and progressing on his rehab so that they kind of have a corner of the knowledge market with, uh, with how his body's feeling. Yeah, his, I need to, I've been trying to pitch a piece. Uh, maybe I'll throw it up at NBA Math eventually, but I might be writing for a Bleach Report about KP's extension and just restricted free agency and how, how fascinating that is to how it's not just the investment itself to what it means to the Knicks' future, but because of the way the cap holds work, it's better for the Knicks to wait unless he's going to sign for less than his cap hold in 2019, which will be about $17.1 million. But does do they have the goodwill built up with him where they could just tell him, hey, we'll wait and we're going to resign you. Like You don't yep. need to worry. They probably don't, knowing everything that happened with Phil Jackson. But that's a one of the more fascinating extension situations to watch this summer. Yeah, it'll it'll be really, really strange. And, you know, it's been an unprecedented last couple of years with, trying to figure out exactly where the salary cap is going to be set with spikes and, and falls in, in expectation. But I have a feeling next summer we're going to see a lot of more teams have room. So if there is a time to go after a guy like Porzingis, next summer it might be able to happen. Another team might be able to sneak in and poach him away from New York. Yeah, I tend to agree, and that might be a further incentive for them to do that. Paul George type season, if not a full redshirt year. I'm going to throw in another news item here just really quick. What do you think of Stephen Curry's Chinese nickname of Fucks the Sky? I think that yeah. might be an all-time nickname. What about I, I loved it. I saw that uh, that little thread on Twitter the other day, too. That was awesome. The uh, what, was the, what was the Westbrook one? I like the Westbrook one, too. Do you remember? Oh, I can't even remember it. Um, let me look at this. It was Nick Kapoor. I hope yeah. I'm pronouncing that right. At Nick underscore K-A-P-U-R. Um, where was I'm scrolling through it right now. I, Giannis Antetokounmpo's was just perfect. Letters, bro, was Giannis Antetokounmpo. <laughs> Manu Ginobili's was good. That was the Demon Blade. 
Um, Carmelo Anthony was Melon. I, I like that. Uh, <laughs> where was Russell Westbrook? I gotta find. Oh, here we go. Lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to stay within budget when making updates to your bathroom. We do it right too by offering up to 20% off select toilets during the final days of our Refresh for Less kitchen and bath event. Step up your style even more with floor tile starting at just 49 cents a square foot. For your next bath project, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 3-6. See store for details, U.S. only. Russell Westbrook was way dude, or we dude. Yeah, yeah I like that. For some reason, that one stuck with me, way dude. Yeah, that. so that, those were all interesting. LeBron's was the little emperor was just whatever. Yeah. Stephen Curry's was my favorite. They also called him the Sprout God, but I think Fucks the Sky wins. Fucks the Sky is, uh, it's a pretty, yeah, the, you can't, tough to top that one. There are meme opportunities there. Um, <laughs> the one active playoff nugget I kind of want to get to since we're recording this in advance of the outcomes of Game 5 between the Jazz and the Rockets and Pelicans and Warriors, the Sixers forced a Game 5 with the Celtics. They were facing a sweep. How do you kind of see, one, do you think, did if you saw it, you're on vacation, so I guess do you see Philly forcing a game six or do you think this is just one of those situations where we've you've given brad stevens further time to adjust whatever the sixers want to do with tj mcconnell now and running him with four of the other of the other starters or do you or do you think maybe that the sixers again as i said are going to be able to force a game six and maybe that'll open the door for this to become not a comeback from them but a point of issue where we can say hey maybe they might be able to erase this 3-0 deficit or, or force a game seven or something like that Right, I was on a plane for most of of Game Four, so I didn't I didn't end up catching some of the second half. But from what I kind of saw, uh, and and reading the the numbers and the, the stats afterwards, is that a couple of the guys on the Sixers really shot above their heads. You know, Saric had an unbelievable game. McConnell has been outrageous from like an effective field goal percentage standpoint. I think he's above seventy percent effective field goal percentage during the postseason. He hit a three in Game Four too, which was just he, he like did. wow. <laughs> Yeah, that, so, I mean, a couple guys playing above their head. Simmons was back to having an effective game, and I thought some of the guys on the, on the Celtics didn't shoot it as well. Rozier was a little bit down last night. So uh, I've taken a little bit of everything with, with a grain of salt because as a, a really wise coach once told me, the team that shoots better usually wins. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so I thought Philly shot a little bit better last night, so they – they probably deserve to win that game. But winning on the road in Boston is incredibly tough. No one's done it yet this postseason. I would expect to see a little bit more Shane Larkin tomorrow night because I think he does a, a he provides the right counterbalance to McConnell's speed and also becomes a guy that if they don't want to have him guard McConnell and play more switchy lineups where they can switch ball screens and not have Larkin be exposed in the post, they have him chase Redick around screens all night or Bellinelli around screens all night. So I think we'll see a little bit more Shane Larkin in game five, but uh, yeah, my money's on the Celtics closing it out at home. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you there too. And that's the, the two final things on this. I'll have you answer is starting with the Celtics. It's just amazing how good of a feel that Brad Stevens has for his rotations and his players and his ability to then make adjustments that are pertinent to said feel or just the information he's getting. Because you look at, 
you know, you saw Greg Monroe out of the rotation, then back yeah. in, and then kind of out of it for Game 4, only played seven minutes. Shane Larkin only played two—he played under two minutes in Game 4, but you're talking about we'll probably see more Shane Larkin in Game 5. We've seen it with Semi. He's, he wasn't playing, then he was starting, then he was out of the rotation, then he's back to playing a little bit more in the blowout. It's just to—to to, to just have that— obviously depth is a part of it for the Celtics. You have all those options, but to be comfortable enough to use all of them and experiment and make these changes on the fly to that degree. Like these aren't to me, typical adjustments you make in the middle of a playoff series. This is like, it's somewhere between a normal adjustment and then Dwayne Casey deciding to play Lucas Nogueira at the end of the first (laughs) half in game four of that Cavaliers Raptors series. Yeah. And, and the coach in me man crushes on Steven so hard, just be, again, his X's and O's and his tactical awareness is so high, but for him to be able to create a culture where every single guy on this team is okay, not playing one night and then being the guy that's called on the next night and is mentally prepared and doesn't pout or make anything, you know, come up their individual circumstance that speaks to the culture and the coaching that he has been able to put in place in Boston. And that's the most impressive part of any of this to me. Do you give the Sixers an abnormally high chance of coming back from this 3-0 series deficit relative to how we would just write every single team that falls into it off completely? Just because if you even look at how they won in Game 4, J.J. Redick didn't shoot particularly well, 3 of 11 (laughs) overall, 1 of 7 from 3. Ben Simmons has had a problem against Boston's defense essentially all series Robert Covington's been at spurts ice cold and it was like that way in game four he played 19 minutes in game four which is just absolutely you look at what just his build his profile what he's supposed to be able to do on defense and his role that universal fit on offense you think he'd probably be one of their two or three most important players in this series and then on the flip side to that you look at the Celtics and there's this implication of vulnerability not because cause per se that Gordon Hayward and Kyrie Irving are out but because now that they're out we're talking about Terry Rozier as this standoff standout performer and then there are nights like game four where you look at the Celtics and say oh we need a guy like Marcus Morris to jack up 15 shots and create a bunch of offense from scratch do you think that opens the door for just an abnormally higher possibility of the Sixers kind of coming back here or is it just are are they cooked? Is it is it just forks and knives here for you? No, I mean it. It is, I, I think, a little bit higher to give Philly some semblance of hope than I would for for most other teams, and and some of that is Boston and just their lack of of overall depth that still makes you hesitate a little bit, uh, just because they're banged up. And part of it is knowing how talented Philly is, and and having uh, one thing I'm just impressed with 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 Philly beyond their the star power of two young guys like Simmons and Embiid is that they're able to simultaneously be a really good shooting team with, with great shooting threats from deep and a really good offensive rebounding team. They've been great on the offensive glass and to be able to do both makes you really, really dangerous in, in close games. And as a team that when they're playing with nothing to lose, like they are a little bit back up against the wall down, you know, three games to one right now, they've got some, some danger to them. One of the the two players that I've been, or one of the players that I've been, I guess, most taken aback by, and may, maybe I shouldn't have, is just Ersan Ilyasova playing a bunch of minutes at the five. Uh, offensive rebounding percentage for the playoffs of 11.5. I just, yeah. it's just like, 
I've been taken aback by that. And he actually had a higher offensive rebounding percentage last year in Atlanta, but it was only for six games. And is he just some sort of under-the-radar, really good offensive rebounder? I don't ever remember watching anything remotely like this from him during regular season play over the years. Yeah, it's. I think a shift to the five pretty much increases percentages in that area because you're guarding guys that are right. are uh, a little bit worse off the bounce, so you can kind of either take them off the bounce and get towards the rim a little bit easier for easy putbacks, or when they leave to the perimeter to challenge, you have a, a huge size advantage inside. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's he's been impressive so far th- this postseason and. Obviously, McConnell's been playing out of this world, and, and it's you know as a guy who lives in the Pittsburgh area now, it's been great to see because uh, they they love him in, in Pittsburgh. That's for sure. If our both of us are picking the Celtics for Game Five, if yeah. the Sixers win Game Five, will there then be a Game Seven? Do you think that they'll win Game Six and force the Game Seven? Yeah, I'll I'll go out on a limb and say that if if the Sixers win Game Five, they will win Game Six as well. All right. Uh, That allows us to move on to the futures of two very interesting teams. Uh, As the guest, and I'm putting you on the spot here, do you want to start with OKC or Toronto? Let's keep it in the Eastern Conference right now and uh, and dive into those poor Raptors. Yeah, that's, I mean, that was something. They, number one seed in the East. Uh, they had a t- they had a very good defense for most of the year. Started to slip off towards the end, and there was data that showed they really struggled against some of the top offenses in the league. But yep. now everything just appears to be coming undone after a four row four row loss to the Cavaliers. Third time in three years that they've been beaten by Cleveland, and where it hasn't really seemed all that close. Even that six game series um, in the previous Eastern Conference Finals that they matched up against, and now this is per. Uh, Josh Lewenberg of TSN Sports that the Raptors are strongly leaning towards firing Dwayne Casey as a result of this. And I want to start there for you is that do you think that's not even are you in support of it, but do you think that's an acceptable recourse for what has happened here? Not not really. And look, we were staring this exact same question down the barrel of a gun a year ago after the Raptors were dismissed from the postseason. And we were saying, you know what? Casey's offense is the issue. It it doesn't translate into the postseason. Guys don't shoot enough three-pointers. And it, it everything's really, really stagnant. I, I don't know if I buy that after watching exactly what we've seen the Raptors' offense completely change over this past year. I mean, they had some guys that had pretty impressive postseasons from a, an efficiency standpoint. Of course, they had guys like Serge Ibaka and Fred Van Vliet who completely were terrible on the offensive <laughs> side. But it's so hard to pin that on a coach. And, again, you look at the strength of this Raptors team throughout the year, it was their depth. And the narrative out there was you get to the postseason, you have more rests, built in you want to play your star players a little bit more heavily and for toronto it's do we kind of follow that narrative or do we stay with our strength and play our bench and and he he went with the latter they only had two guys play over 30 minutes a night in the postseason and it backfired 
Now, does that necessarily mean that he needs to lose his job over that and Toronto needs to go with somebody else? No, not necessarily. The, ro- the roster will look a little bit different next year. But he still has a strong core. He's responsible for getting a lot out of them offensively. He made OG Ananobi pretty quickly into a really, really solid two-way player. He's not just a defensive stopper on the wing. The guy shot 56% from the floor during the postseason and 45% from three. I mean, Casey needs to get some credit for this. We've had six coaching changes in the Eastern Conference already this year. What makes him think they're going to get somebody better than Casey that's available? Right, and that's where I land on this because I agree with everything you had just said is – I get it's easier to change coaches than it would be to break up this core or to extract value on the trade market for DeRozan, Ibaka, or Kyle Lowry, those huge deals. But two things really stand out for me. is First, this was year one of their stylistic shift. You're yep. giving this change one year to marinate and saying, oh, well, he didn't do a good enough job and we were supposed to beat the Cavaliers this season. And then two, and you kind of alluded to it, you have to imagine that there's going to be an upgrade on the market that levels up the Raptors without yeah. making any significant personnel changes. I don't know that that exists. It's either that or you have to argue that Dwayne Casey lost them the series. And there were some questionable mid-game rotations. Uh, putting Noguera in for the final sub two minutes of the first half in game four, he was a minus 10 during that stretch. The Raptors were obliterated. But Toronto's fight there just wasn't, it was, it was barely existent from the start, it seemed. And he didn't go to Ananobi, Abaka, 4-5 combination soon enough or just enough at all. I get all that, but the Raptors should have won game one. They missed a ton of shots that they normally made. And then game three, LeBron happens. That's not like another coach. Brad Stevens himself, and this is what people point out to me, is, well, look what Brad Stevens has been able to do in Boston is one, let's not undersell the talent and depth Boston has to begin with. And two, where t- tell me where the Brad Stevens is on the coaching market right now that you're going to get to replace Dwayne Casey. No, it's and, and it's like we said at the beginning of the pod, it's, it's a crapshoot trying to be able to find out who's going to be the next great coach. Casey is going to get a lot of votes for coach of the year this year. They lost two games to probably the best player, one of the – two or three best players of all time in a postseason series who, by the way, name another team that's been able to knock him off in the Eastern Conference over the last eight years. Nobody. Right. We can't take this all out on Dwayne Casey because they lose two games in crunch time. It, the series could be 2-2 right now if one bounce goes a different way and another one goes another way. Like, I think it's just a severe overreaction to it, and coaches are always going to be the fall guy for that. Sometimes it's justified, sometimes it's not. He wasn't perfect in the series. Absolutely not. But A, is there somebody better? You have no idea if you're the the front office of the Raptors. And B, are we a little bit overreacting to another team falling to the wayside of LeBron? I think so. I'm 100% there with you. And it's even aspects of what the Raptors did, that bench mob, which kind of petered off towards the end of the year, overachieved and you have to credit Dwayne Casey for turning to so many guys with an experience and when you're kind of looking at the Eastern Conference and if we assume that LeBron James stays the Raptors are still going to be one of those three main teams who might be able to leapfrog him at some point the two picks are obviously Boston and Philadelphia but you look at Siakam you look at Pirtle 
you look at, let's assume they bring Van Vliet back. They have Dellen Wright. They have players, even Norman Powell, who gets his extension and then falls off the face of the earth this season. Mm-hmm. Ananobi as well. This could still come together. The Raptors might have that organic leap within them with Dwayne Casey on the sidelines. And if they install a new coach, I don't think that is the new coach going to be responsible for them making that next leap. I don't think they will. If they make that jump, it'll be because it was it was coming, not because someone waved a magic wand from the sidelines that Casey didn't have or, or refused to use. Agreed. And, and I mean, their roster, they have two guys that are going to be restricted free agents, Bibi Naguera and Fred Van Vliet. The vast majority of their minutes are returning. A lot of times you see growth from stability. And I think stability for another year would be a good thing for these Raptors because let's face it, you work so hard to try to get up to the point where you're the best team in the Eastern Conference for the regular season, where you're the one seed. And the Raptors have built a hell of a roster to kind of try to tear things down or, or switch things up in a, a very uh, knee-jerk reaction sort of way. It kind of belittles how much they've put into the process to get there up to this point. And, you know, I say this all the time because tanking becomes this this huge hot button topic that we have. And by no means is anyone suggesting the Raptors blow everything up. But, I mean, there's a lot of value in kind of being the next team up. If LeBron's not in the Eastern Conference right now, Toronto's got a cakewalk to the Eastern Conference Finals. Right, maybe even the NBA Finals. If looking, depending on how you feel about the Celtics not having two of their three best players, and maybe the Sixers being a little inexperienced for this moment. Right. I mean, they're they're literally one LeBron injury away from being the top team in the East, and this season not being a disappointment to them. I I don't find a lot of value in taking an unnecessary risk that doesn't position you in that point. Now, the East is going to look different these next couple of years because Boston and Philly are still getting a lot better. Uh, we don't know what the future has in store with LeBron and Cleveland, but I think it's pretty safe to say Toronto is in that top four with those other teams moving forward next year. And anything that they do from a, a coaching standpoint to, to change things up, I think risks being in that top tier still. It doesn't really make sense to me unless you're going to steal. Because, and I'll say this, the team president, Masai Ujiri, is, he's done a wonderful job there. And so if he gets rid of Dwayne Casey, I feel one of two things would probably happen. There'd still be some player moves. And if that's what you're going to do, if you're going to change a bunch, then I could probably understand the Casey removal more. I understand it even more than that if you've just decided that we're not we're not doing this in LeBron James's window anymore. And we have the Celtics and the Sixers coming up. We're just going to kind of start over. And we have some of these young guys. Um, we're going to look to trade our veterans, including DeRozan and Lowry. And if you decide, that seems like it would be an overreaction as well. But if yep. you decide, hey, we thought this was our shot, and now that we have the Celtics and the Sixers coming at our heels, we, we're not going to try and double down on this anymore. Then I might be able to understand moving Casey a, a little bit better. I would think Ujiri would have learned from pretty much the exact same circumstance that happened in Denver when he had George Carl, who won Coach of the Year that year, a really, really deep roster, and they didn't fare well in the postseason, and Carl was let go. And kind of look what happened those those following years. They had Brian Shaw come in, and things just kind of fell by the wayside. He was done after two years. Ujiri went to Toronto. 
you know, you would think that you kind of learn from a little bit of that experience. The and this also might seem, uh, I believe Casey's only signed through 2018, 2019. And there's this unwritten rule in the NBA pretty much that you're not supposed to have um, a, like a lame duck head coach. And maybe yeah. they're looking at it from the perspective of it's almost like we have to reinvest in him or risk things blowing up next year. And just we've kind of danced around it, change for the sake of change. When you look at their books, if they decide to carry Bebe's uh, cap hold and Van Vliet's cap hold, which they will because it's nothing, uh, they're looking at about right off. That's without re-signing those guys, just carrying those cap holds and bringing everyone else back. They're looking at a payroll that jumps past $130 million by a few million. And yeah, that's I, around $10 million over the luxury tax just to start and would probably go higher depending on how much. I think you can renounce Bebe with, with a certain level of confidence just because you have Pirtle and Siakam and Abaka and Valanciunas. But Van Vliet probably makes up that difference even in the skimpy market. So maybe that's also just what they're looking at. They're re- they don't see other clear moves for them to make without really breaking up this nucleus. And they don't, in turn... Are any of these guys that they have, it's not Abaka, so that leaves you with Lowry or DeRozan. Are those the type of players that you can make the Kyrie Irving move with? And I know that backfired in Cleveland, but the original sentiment was, oh, they changed out Kyrie Irving for some nice spare parts. I don't know that Lowry or DeRozan is going to get you anywhere near a return that garners that type of reaction. Again, I know Cleveland's return went bust there, but just the the initial... receptiveness to it was fairly high yeah and and again i i just i don't understand why a lot of these franchises that are like the raptors you know they won 59 games this year in the regular season and four more in the postseason why are you so willing to trade away your two best players and start that whole process with no guarantee of getting back there over again it's it's one of those things that kind of bothers me. I think tanking is is a, a good circumstance in some areas, and blowing things up and starting over really is fruitful in a lot of ways, but not in circumstances where you're a 50 game winner and pretty much the whole band is getting back together. I just I don't get it. And you also don't know what type of trades could arise leading into next season or actually during next season. You have some nice salary matching tools when you look at. I would probably call Ibaka close to unmovable unless you're taking back some kind of bad money or including a sweetener. But Valanchunas, his deal, he has a player option for 2019-2020, probably picks it up. Maybe he doesn't because Ennis Cantor's talking about opting out now. Um, you, That's something, a contract another team could justify taking on. C.J. Miles, player option for 2019-2020, good shooter. Someone teams could probably talk themselves into in, in certain deals that require salary matching. Even Norman Powell now. Some people just talk him in as a piece for the future uh, if he's put in the right situation. And you don't know what kind of problems are going to arise elsewhere. Uh, so it's just like maybe you, again, as you said, there's value and continuity. And then there might be a way to pivot into something even better that you can't predict just yet. The Celtics, for instance, obviously had more trade assets. But there was they couldn't have known that Kyrie Irving was going to necessarily become available or that they were going to win the bidding there knowing that would Cleveland really trade him to the team that just faced them in the Eastern Conference Finals? Right. Right. Yeah, there's there's so much that's unpredictable. I mean, a year ago, we wouldn't have thought Kawhi Leonard would ever be up for talking in a trade conversation, yet here we are. 
he's kind of the big name of, of superstars that people are talking about for this summer. So, I mean, you always want to have some flexibility and, and be all ears when the phone rings. Pick up, listen, and, and see if it's in the best interest of your organization. But barring something perfect coming together for the Raptors, I don't know if there really is anything out there that's worth kind of uh, reformulating the puzzle a little bit. Because I know a lot of people are going to say, well, it doesn't work. It doesn't get past Cleveland with LeBron and Boston and, and Philly are going to be pretty good. You have to do something. They still, The Raptors still have two fairly valuable trade exceptions where if they want to add a little bit through that, they can. Um, you know, if, if it ends up being type of thing where they have to let Naguera and Van Vliet go, they can still add a little bit more depth or, or some pieces that really help them. They have a, what is it, $11.8 million and a $7.6 million trade exception that both expire kind of that early to mid-July period. They can do some things. Yeah, that's a good point as well. Uh, we kind of talked them to death. The one final verdict I'd like uh, from you, do you think at least one of, if not more than one of, Casey, DeRozan, and Lowry are going to be gone to start next year? Um, You know, it's a... I don't think it'll be Lowry or DeRozan, so if it is somebody, it's Casey. But I'm going to say no. I'm going to say they, they stick with him. Because the guy... he. I would have thought if they would have gotten rid of him, it would have been last year. He's got more lives than a cat. We'll, we'll st- <laughs> I, I kind of tend to agree with you. Uh, and I just, I don't know how you pick to move between Lowry and DeRozan. Lowry is the better player right now, but he's older. Point guards uh, who are a little bit undersized, they're not supposed to age well. And I, but I also all can't picture DeMar DeRozan getting them more value on the trademark. If someone goes, it seems like it would be Casey, but for some reason, I feel like th- they'll kind of run it back. But maybe I'm just uh, maybe I'm just so dumbfounded that Casey's name's even being put on the chopping block right now that I'm, I'm biased there. Yeah, I'm with you. I am with you. That brings us to the Oklahoma City Thunder, which I don't even necessarily know where to start with them. So <sighs> let's get super basic and. <laughs> what do you think Paul George is going to do? And we're just going to, I think people need to realize that, hey, he's going to opt out because his max salary next year is $30.3 million, and he's slated to make $20.7 um, oh. if he picks up his play. This isn't going to be an opt-in and trade situation. He'd be leaving a ton of money on the table. Yep. So here's, oh, I have no, yeah, I, I, no one has any idea where to start with Oklahoma City because, Okay, Paul George opts out. Great, he opts out. That's the, the anticipated move. He's probably going to make in the, the neighborhood of 30-something million per year uh, on his next contract. The Oklahoma City Thunder have been above the luxury tax the last couple of seasons. Even with Paul... Preposterous G- that they would do that to have kept James Harden, though, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, hindsight's a pretty humorous thing sometimes, isn't it? But, uh, yeah, with, I mean, Paul George, if he comes back for $30 million a year next year, they're over $20 million above the luxury tax. Because <laughs> uh, Car- Carmelo's going to opt in. You got $35.5 million per year for Westbrook, 24 and change for Steven Adams, Robertson for 10, and then Abrinas, Patterson, and Singler all combined for about $15.5, 16000000 million. They're so expensive. So 
We're talking a lot about Paul George making the decision. Is he going to come back to Oklahoma City? Is ownership really willing to continue to pay for this? Because honestly, you have one season where you have to pay Carmelo Anthony $28 million to continue to start and make a horrible impact on your team. Do they really think that they're going to win and keep paying that repeater tax next season? The You know what's almost even more interesting to me? So let's say Paul George leaves, which is something we'll obviously talk about. But let's say he leaves. The Thunder, when you bake in minimum cap holds and assume that Anthony does not exercise his early termination option, which, real quick aside there, how long would it take him to recoup $27.9 million on the open market? At least three years, right? If not more. Oh. I don't know if he'd ever get that back at this point. He's 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 been god awful, and oh, it's and it's it, like the organization is handcuffed because they gave up so much to get Paul George, and they're going to probably be an over the cap team anyway. They can't replace him with virtually anything. They're handcuffed into giving him whatever type of money he commands that max salary. So they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. Like they're not in a position to win as long as they have Carmelo's twenty-eight million on the books. They're going to be paying out the ass for their luxury tax penalty, and they can't afford to let Paul George go. Like it's it's a lose lose for the organization right now. Right, and and what I was before I thrown you that Carmelo Anthony tangent. If Paul George leaves there and you bake in the minimum cap holds and Carmelo Anthony, they're still at about $119.3 million in salary. So that's within $4 million of the luxury tax. And we haven't talked about new contracts for Josh Eustis or Jeremy Grant. You have to believe they're going to want Jeremy Grant back. And so yep. you're going to be, if George leaves, you're probably more likely to buy out Carmelo Anthony, or maybe you're likely to buy him out either way. But they could theoretically, in theory, they could be a tax team even if Paul George leaves. And and they're not good if Paul George leaves. Like, they have Russell Westbrook and how many non-shooters around him? Steven Adams, Andre Robertson, Carmelo's as streak as Will Ferrell in old school. <laughs> I mean, they, they have no shooting around those guys. Houston and, and Grant, like we're saying, those guys are streaky as well. And <sighs> if, if you're Paul George, why do you even want to come back it's not even a matter of will Westbrook have some stylistic or functional epiphany it's just that okay they wait out Carmelo Anthony's contract let's say if you have Paul George on the books in 2019-2020 you're paying him Stephen Adams Russell Westbrook and Andre Robertson 107 million dollars combined into four players the projected salary cap at that point is 108 million yep so you're not going to have wiggle room regardless. You're signing onto a team and saying, hey, this core is going to play better. And I don't I don't know that you can necessarily say that. Maybe Steven Adam improves a little bit. Maybe you get more shooting. But is Russell Westbrook going to get better as his contract goes on and he gets more expensive? No. And we no. don't even know what Robertson's going to look like coming back from a ruptured patellar tendon. Right. Right. And I, I think Paul George does enjoy playing with Westbrook because he takes a lot of the kind of lead dog burden off of his shoulders. And, and George is, you know, he may end up being a little bit like a Scottie Pippen type of guy, like who's just really, really good being the number two on an elite team. Like that might end up being just the the ceiling for a guy like him. And, you know, he, he did fine. He 
his team went to the Eastern Conference Finals when he was the lead dog. But you can get a little bit more traction out of him as an elite, elite number two and two-way player. Uh, that said, this is a this might be a situation, and I'd love to pick your ban- your brain and hear your thoughts on this one, Dan. Is this might be the situation where an organization needs a fresh start from the sidelines and a different coach, because it does not seem like Billy Donovan is going to be the type of guy who gets Russell Westbrook to share the ball a little bit more and not get him to sh- to take eighty bajillion shots in a closeout game. Is there a coach that's going to reach him though? And that's what I've always thought about Westbrook is that Paul George, Kevin Durant was so talented it didn't matter because we know he's a top five player, whatever you want to call him. But Paul George is almost the limit of the regular superstar Russell Westbrook can play alongside to where he's mostly comfortable playing off the ball and and will hit some catch-and-shoot shots. But if you get any more ball dominant than someone like him, there becomes problems, which almost... It, it seems to me that Westbrook, let's look at the 2016-2017 team. Put him on that squad, but with, say, that everyone can shoot. You have Steven Adams, you're running spread pick and rolls with three shooters around you. Westbrook almost seems, the way he plays now, that he could bring that version of that team further than he could have brought what I think objectively was a more talented Oklahoma City team this yep. year. Yep, I'd, I would I would agree with that, and again to answer your question initially like who's going to be the type of coach that gets Russ to play that way I don't think there there probably is anybody you know if you're a masochist like me you'd want to see Jason Kidd in that situation just to to kind of you know some people love to watch the world burn Um, but you know it's just there's so much tension just in in my my own thoughts about you know this is probably the best way to use Westbrook is like you were saying the spread pick and roll just let him kind of go because he creates so much and, and seemingly doesn't tire. But when you have more talented guys around him, like Paul George or like Carmelo Anthony to some extent, that need a little bit of touches and a little bit of love, you almost need a guy like Westbrook to ease off the gas pedal every now and again so that you're you're attacking other – you're using other modes of egress to kind of get to the back line of the defense instead of just – Russ pick and roll or Russ ISO drive every single time. Right. And it's either that or the less likely scenario, a star that actually overshadows him, even though he's going to still monopolize the offense. Kevin Durant was the guy that he had to recognize needed his touches. And even we talked about Kevin Durant turning into a bystander much too often, but there are only, if we're, I'm not even saying where you look at the superstar pantheon in the NBA, but there are probably five to seven guys who actually would have that cachet on a team with Russ. And so that limits your pool of partners considerably. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I, uh, I have no beef with any NBA fan base or, or anything like that. I try to avoid hot takes when I can, but a couple years removed from Kevin Durant's decision, how can we kind of blame him for leaving when you take a look at the stylistic differences in golden state and the success that it leads to versus kind of what we've continued to see in Oklahoma city, which is Westbrook just pound the ball into the ground you know, until infinity, uh, regardless of who's around him. Yeah. Oh, you absolutely positively can't. And Zach Lowe mentioned this on a recent episode of the low post saying teams around the league. And he was clear that this wasn't a sourced report from the thunder, that there are teams around the league who think the thunder should start shopping Russell Westbrook. And Mm -hmm. that's presented Mm -hmm. with the caveat of one. You don't know what the other teams agendas are. Is this a team that wants Westbrook or it's, 
Two, it would be easier for a team. It's easier for an outsider to say the Thunder need to get rid of Westbrook. Who his extension kicks in next season? He's going to be owed about two hundred and five point one million over the next five years. Who this is a John Wall situation? Who is taking that contract? Yeah, I, I, I you got me. I'm stumped. You would have to maybe I could see maybe a team like Phoenix being starstruck enough to go all in on that. And you're not going to get Devin Booker. Maybe you get this year's pick and Josh Jackson or just something along those lines. But that would be that's really the only team I could kind of think of. You don't want a part of paying. Um, Westbrook is going to be I think it's his age 34 season. He's going to be slated to make 46.7 million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> and the mileage that he logs too. I mean. He's not a guy who, you know, I remember seeing the article that Windhorse wrote maybe yesterday on LeBron finding ways to take rest in games and walking more and, you know, kind of exerting less energy as the season goes on while playing, you know, while being on the court. Westbrook's not that guy. He's going to have a lot of wear and tear at the end of that contract. So when you're paying him $46.6 million in 2022, um, good luck to you, man. And that lends more credence to your point about how he might need a coach that's able to reach him, but it behooves him to start listening to this because part of what's going to make LeBron's twilight so interesting is, yes, okay, he's learned how to rest in the middle of games, but you could, Andy has talked about this a lot on the podcast, you could very easily envision him transitioning into a still a high-profile role, but a different stage of his career where you see him hit more spot-up shots or being used as the role guy more, just playing off the ball generally more to save his usage, to preserve the burden that's put upon his shoulders. Right now, Russell Westbrook can't be that player. He's such a force of nature with the ball in his hands, and he is... I, you know, people... I'm going to make jokes about him because that's what I do. I make jokes. I'm an equal opportunity like dumbass, but it's just... <laughs> He he! I can't imagine him being in such a role, and I can't imagine his twilight being fun to watch or a twilight that's going to help his team. And I don't even if you get this Westbrook for the next two or three years, I don't think you can count on him on Russ being Russ towards the tail end of this contract. No, no, I I agree with that. And geez, you know, you're convincing me right now while you're saying it. Maybe all Russell Westbrook needs is a little bit of Pat Riley to mature him and and get him to buy into a little bit of culture because there's one guy I've seen that's effectively been able to get superstars to align together and and do so uh, in a way where every single player who's best utilized with the ball in their hands isn't begging for it on every single possession. And that was with those, those four years LeBron is in Miami. I mean, you could say, yeah, Steve Kerr does a great job with Golden State, but Curry and Thompson are so they're, – they're probably most dangerous when they don't have the ball in their hands, when they're coming off of screens and they're cutting mm-hmm. because of the gravity that they have elsewhere. I mean, LeBron and D-Wade were not like that at all. And and I just – I look back at those teams in those four years with Spolster and Riley kind of running the show. I learned so much from watching them. And I think that, that we're going to look back as the years go by even more fondly on just how much they accomplished from an organizational standpoint. Yeah, I <laughs> – Unfortunately, I don't see a feasible path to him getting to Miami, who's traded no. away. Uh, that's well, they shouldn't, they, they shouldn't want him either because we're, right. if we're talking about how much that contract is worth. I could see, but I could see them being a team that if you presented them with the opportunity, maybe they'd buy into take. And who knows if you build a package around Goran Dragic and Justice Winslow 
and a super future first-round pick or something, maybe you get Oklahoma City to listen just to get out from that burden. But I think Westbrook's too important to the franchise's existence there. And I don't mean to belittle anything he's done. I mean, mm-hmm. he... I wouldn't have voted for him for MVP last season, but I don't think that you can say he didn't deserve it. It wasn't just the triple-doubles. That team lost one of the three or five best players in the league and still flirted with the 50-victory win mark. Like, that's... He's he's an incredible talent. Uh, yes. I can't... Yes. I'm trying to, like, rack my brain. I think maybe is there a coach, just anyone that you could put there aside from Donovan, who might just reach... Westbrook and I mean of course I'm immediately going to say well what about one of San Antonio's assistants but then it becomes a matter of Messina hasn't been a head coach in the NBA Hammond and Udoka haven't been head coaches in the NBA would he listen to them or respect them enough to change maybe someone like Budenholzer could do it I, I just I don't I honestly just don't I don't know short of it actually being one of these geniuses established guys who are already employed like a obviously Greg Popovich, or you could say Brad right. Stevens. Like, those guys are never going to be available, though. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I, again, no one really comes to mind, and it kind of goes with the theme of this podcast. Like, coaching is a bit of a crapshoot. You don't really know what you're going to get. And sometimes the reason you lose isn't coaching, but coaches got to take the fall anyway. Sometimes, the, you know, the reason you win is coaching, but you got to pay the players and give them credit, and then all of a sudden – uh dynamics change and coaches kind of get nudged out of their comfort zone a little bit more so you know things really change but i do want to say one thing really really positive about oklahoma city i love steven adams yes that guy is just i love him great he's a great interview and he's just he's just his workhorse yeah he he's going to be kind of the the unsung hero on a lot of really good teams and the guy that when we look back at these these oklahoma city thunder a decade and a half from now two decades from now we'll say oh yeah that's steven adams guy i remember him. he wait a second he was really good it's just you know what's going to color some people against him though and i can't necessarily blame him it's his contract the timing yeah. of that extension because clint capella not saying clint capella's insanely better and he's a different player but he's not going to get anywhere near that money in free agents at least i don't expect him to if he does good for him and so that that's going to kind of skew some people away from steve adams but he's he's super valuable to this team what the two final things before we wrap up super quick what does the perfect off season look like for this team within the realm of feasibility and i'm basically just throwing you a hint that it's not going to include carmelo anthony uh, <laughs> exercising yeah. His ETO. yeah that would be it um you know other than that i think paul george comes back uh comes back and and resigns long term i think that's probably the the biggest deal I, I i still go back and forth on whether it'd be better for him to opt in for that final year or you know and, and risk losing him again next summer or if you uh if you want him to buy in i'm, I'm gonna say take him over the long term so have him sign another long-term extension with the team. Uh, they probably going to end up striking gold with their second-round pick um, and getting somebody that can come in and shoot right away. They use their taxpayer mid-level exception to sign a three-point shooter. Um, Joe Harris. Sorry. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> He would be a good fit there against somebody that can play on the wing and, and kind of space the floor a little bit more effectively. And uh, Andre Robertson comes back from injury and somehow starts to shoot 40% from three and 80% yeah. from the free throw line. <laughs> 
And the final thing, I would probably just agree on all fronts. They might even have to hope if they're even going to use their taxpayer um, exception with because you look at what, as you said, what their payroll is going to be. You just throw Paul George's max in there. They're at basically yeah. 150 million. Yeah. They might have to try and split it between two guys just to get the requisite shooting in here, unless they're big believers in Terrence Ferguson. But even then, you have to account for one of, if not both, of Grant and Hustis are gone. Right, and, and then who who can you get kind of at that veteran minimum that's going to be an effective shooter? I don't know who's really going to be out there uh, this this season because there's going to be a lot of teams that utilize that veteran minimum spot and that and that type of salary. Um, and I think there are more attractive landing spots in OKC. Right, you're not going to get the ring chasers going to Oklahoma City because right. of the way their season. Maybe you might have to roll the dice for them on someone like a Luke Babbitt. Is someone they could get there. You could hope that you could figure out a use for him, but yeah. Uh, and then the final thing would be the: Do you think these players, yes or no? You can give a brief ex- explanation. Are going to be in Oklahoma City to start next season by opening night next season? Russell okay. Westbrook. Yes. Yeah, that's easy. Carmelo Anthony. Yes, because he'd be a fool to walk away from twenty-eight mil. You don't think you can't see a buyout maybe coming? Like if he, if they gave him, I mean, if they gave him twenty, they save eight, and that's huge for their tax bill. And then yes. you're, yes, you're paying him to play somewhere else, but is it almost worth it? Because then you don't have to worry about playing him for yourself. I, I, it sounds like such a ridiculous thing to say. I know, I know, but I, I think the issue is okay. Let's say they give him, you know, twenty, and they the buyout's only eight. They're still going to be pretty far above the luxury tax. Yeah, he would have to probably offer to take like half. Which, if you're maybe the Thunder, you're probably not hoping for this. But you know, if LeBron does the opt-in and trade with the Rockets, then you would like that would leave your window. But he would have to do that soon because Melo needs to actually. Well, no, if he's already um, picked up his option or just not exercised the ETO, that that would be something you almost hope for because then if he sees the opportunity to play in Houston, maybe he's willing to take even less in a buyout and just go over there and be LeBron's hanger on. If, if that happens, then uh, I think they should throw a parade down the streets of Oklahoma City. <laughs> and the big one, Paul George. Uh, no. Where do you think he's going to end up? I think he's L.A. bound. I think he's probably going to end up going to the Lakers. I don't. I honestly don't have a pulse on what he'll do. I don't think he should go back to Oklahoma City. I've written extensively about that. If I was to pick where he should land, he needs to go to Philly. Yeah, he, he would be a fantastic fit in Philly. Yeah, I, I again, I I don't disagree with that. Um, I just, man, I, I think he's the type of guy who at, at this point wants to to head home and kind of be, you know, it's different. He can be built around as the face of the Lakers a little bit, but also have a lot of really good young players around him. I think that that's really really attractive right now with what Los Angeles has with. With Lonzo, with Brandon Ingram, Kuzma's been fantastic. Uh, you throw in Julius Randle after you re- re-sign him, and I think that the Lakers are in a, in pretty good shape to to do some damage this summer. Yeah, I would. I, I kind of agree with you there as well. But we want to thank you. With all that being said, for giving us uh, sixty plus minutes now of your time, just over an hour while you're on vacation, the listeners appreciate it. I appreciate it even more than them. I love talking hoops with you. Could do it. All day, all night, 24-7, 365. 
You guys need to make sure that you're following Adam on Twitter at Spinella14, S-P-I-N-E-L-L-A. He is an assistant men's basketball coach for Washington and Jefferson. You can also see his work at B-Ball Breakdown, NBA Math as well from time to time, um, and also Fast Model. Again, follow him on Twitter at Spinella14. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Hardwood Knocks on iTunes or wherever you can get your podcast. We are everywhere now. We've uh, changed where we're distributing our podcast from, and we're on Google Play. We'll be on Spotify and our heart radio soon enough, I've been told. So we're all over. So go wherever you listen to your podcast, and we'll be there. But the biggest way to help us out right now is to head over to iTunes, take the 10 to 15 seconds out of your day, and leave us a rating and a review. And if you haven't subscribed... What are you doing? Get on that. And you could do it for your friends and family too. Trust me, they'll appreciate it. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Favale, F A V A L E. You can follow the soon to be graduated from law school, Andy Bailey, at Andrew D. Bailey. You can follow our sponsor, MBA Math, at MBA underscore math. Hardwood Knox is at Hardwood Knox. And um, until next time, I'm going to leave you with the shout out to Kyle Anderson. Lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to stay within budget when making updates to your bathroom. We do it right, too, by offering up to 20% off select toilets during the final days of our Refresh for Less kitchen and bath event. Step up your style even more with floor tile starting at just 49 cents a square foot. For your next bath project, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 3-6. See store for details, U.S. only. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.